3: For the first time in this country's history, LGBTQ candidates are on the ballot in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Plus, the Pennsylvania ACLU has filed a federal complaint against a school district in the state, alleging it discriminates against trans and non-binary students. And 20 states across the country have pledged to offer a legal shield against anti-LGBTQ legislation, a move some are referring to as the rainbow wall. Those stories and more on our LGBTQ News Roundtable. Later in the show, from the covert meetings of the colonial insurrectionists to the early days of a young America, Samuel Adams was there. A new warts and All biography offers new details about one of the nation's founding fathers.
4: It really is a life largely in the shadows, which is one of the reasons, why I think, why we've had trouble locating him a man for the people and a rebel whose passion
3: for freedom was key to the American Revolution. Samuel Adams is the revolutionary, profiled in a new eye-opening biography. It's our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me remotely, Grace Sterling Stowell, executive director of the Boston Alliance of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer Youth, or Bagley. Hi, Grace. Hi, Callie. Glad to be here today. Glad to have you. Also with me, Jansen Wu, Executive Director of the GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, or GLAD. Hello, Jansen. Hi,
2: Callie. Thank you again, as always.
3: And E.J. Graff, Journalist, Author, and Managing Editor of The Monkey Cage at The Washington Post. Welcome back, E.J. Hey, Callie. All right, let's start off with the, for the first time, historically, LGBTQ candidates are on the ballot in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Now, we should be clear. Probably there were some LGBTQ candidates on the ballot before, but we're talking about out candidates where the electorate knows that they're out and the candidates have uh, made that clear. Um, What do you think about this, Grace?
0: you know it's so exciting you know as somebody who's been in the movement for decades and it seems almost unimaginable that there could be so many out lgbtq folks uh, you know in states all across the country running for office uh, to to create positive change so uh, it's great and and hopefully hopefully many or most of them will win and uh, and that will help help move all of the issues forward that are so important to us
3: Do you think it's a little odd, given there is so much um, negative energy around trans people, um, for sure, and non-binary? How do you how do you see it um, in that context?
0: Well, you know, I think we often talk about all of the letters and we and but you raise an important point, certainly trans and non-binary folks that the issue is gender identity and gender expression. And so we face some different challenges than cisgender, gay, lesbian, bi folks. And uh, I, I think it's both a, a sign of, of the increased visibility of, of the trans community that, that more and more of us are running for office and that uh, we're, but we're seeing also the backlash because we're also the, the tip of the iceberg uh, from uh, attacks on the right.
3: Okay, before uh, I ask the rest of you to weigh in, let's take a listen to Becca Balint. She's running for the House of Representatives. She is expected to become the first woman and first openly gay person to represent Vermont.
4: It's going to be so exciting to be the first woman to represent Vermont and the first openly gay person to represent Vermont. It's an incredible honor. I never really thought that that I would be here. I don't come from a political family I did not have those those connections. And, you know, for a long time, it was really just a pipe dream.
3: Jansen, um, what say you?
2: Well, first of all, Vermont, it's it's about time. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I mean, your earlier question, Kelly, I think really just underscores the the courageousness, um, you know, with which uh, these candidates must, um, you know, run with. I mean, it's not that long ago that Harvey Milk, who was our second openly LGBTQ elected official ever in our country after Elaine Noble in Massachusetts, but Harvey Milk, you know, was assassinated. Um, and you know, given the political climate that we're in, um, giving the increased targeting of particularly trans folks for us to also see, um, you know, you know, us not allowing ourselves to be terrorized and instead running to and for elected positions, I think is a really courageous act.
1: EJ, well, I think the the key point is what you said earlier Callie that you just know that lgbt candidates have been running all along but what's changed is that we've changed the country enough that they can be out and they uh the men don't have to have um show wives and then get exposed it's uh we we all remember some of those situations where somebody gets outed because they've been caught with uh, some with a man. Um, it was almost always men, as I recall. I can't remember any um, women being outed that way. And uh, now people know that we're, we're around and are okay
3: with us running. Hmm. Well, that's a high point. Let's go to a low point. Um, the ACLU is um, um, looking at a school district in Pennsylvania and alleging that there is Harassment and bullying against LGBTQ students, um, and that the school didn't do anything. So, hence the the lawsuit. Um, Jansen, I'll start with you because it's a legal case, and uh, perhaps you know more details about it.
2: Well, it seems as if the school district has failed um, the LGBTQ students, which you know is sadly not uncommon, um, both you know across the country, but also historically um, for our community. Um, But what I think is um, a newer uh, phenomenon is the way that, um, you know, the right for LGBTQ students to receive an equal education as all students has really become politicized. um, And that, you know, this isn't just a story about bullying, but this is a story about bullying that has been enabled and in fact encouraged um, by school board leaders, by superintendents, by teachers themselves, uh, and not just in this district, but in districts across the country. And that's, you know, both sad and also not a surprise given how we know that schools um has become a lightning rod in our coming election and in the last election as well, too, whether it's um fights over school vouchers or pandemic um COVID precautions, uh, to um, you know, you know, quote unquote the critical race theory being taught in the class to LGBTQ books in the library. Um, You know, the extreme right, or I should really just say the right at this point, has latched onto schools as a way to evoke fear and energize their base. And sadly, LGBTQ students are caught in the crosshairs.
3: So do you think that this is um, I mean, we're we're seeing there's examples of cases like this around the country. But but this one, to your point, Jansen, is that it, it appears that the school just sort of laid back and and did nothing. Is that something new you're seeing that that twist um, in terms of what might be begin to be happening across the country, where where officials who should be in charge of having some uh, response just do nothing?
2: It's not new, but it's elevated to an alarming level, um, and you know we're seeing even in uh, places you know where you know people might assume that LGBTQ students um, would receive the support of school boards and teachers. Um, those, you know, school board elections being targeted um, by, you know, the extreme right um, for this very specific purpose of ensuring that um, they're not able to even be out safely in their classrooms. Mm. Great. You know, I'm, I'm thinking two things, you know, first,
0: you know, and as I alluded to earlier, it's just that, you know, trans and non-binary students and LGBT students and youth and children in general and their families are being targeted they're being used as political football uh, they're under attack there's just horrible things that are uh, being aimed at them by the right uh, and and it's frightening and that being said I'm always proud when when young people step up and advocate and protest and 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 i'm seeing more and more of that happening uh, both locally and, and nationally where young people are saying enough and increasingly they have family support so mm-hmm. that the that, that it is uh it is young people and their families stepping up to combat uh, all of this hate
3: if i may um ej based on what grace just said that is exactly what's happening at um yeshiva university um So the Supreme Court, that's the U.S. Supreme Court, refused to block a lower court ruling that ordered the school to recognize an LGBTQ group. So Yeshiva University said it's just pausing all student groups on campus. Um, And so to Grace's point about young people taking up the protest and, and standing up for themselves, it's a little bit of what... Of not a, it's a lot of what is happening now. Let's listen to Beth Weiss. She's an alum of Yeshiva University and one of the founding members of the YU Pride Alliance.
0: We were kids. We were college students who just wanted to get together and hang out and have support. And yet we had to like sit through all these meetings where we were told like,
4: "Well, there's nuances, and we want to support you, but we can't," and just like all of this kind of manipulation and back and forth.
3: So put that all together, um, EJ. So we've got the Pennsylvania District where there's, you know, a lawsuit in place and then um, we have students sort of rising up as they can. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how this plays um, how you see it playing out um, against the context that I mentioned earlier. There seems to be so much animosity, uh, toxicity going on, but these students are standing up and what's your general take on this?
1: Well, I- I think um, the country has completely changed, so it's visible now that picking on gay kids or trans kids, LGBTQ kids, is bullying. And that what what the right wing right now is doing is nationalizing that bullying and saying these are the these are the people who are bringing down civilization for you now, particularly the trans kids. Um, They're, they're the ones who are on the very front lines of destroying your country and your manhood. But the kids, I have teens living in my house, and they tell me, everybody knows people who are gay, um, or, and they usually use that term to mean the entire spectrum, and nobody cares. Um, And so they're walking out and saying, no, no, you can't do this to our friends. And that, that gives me some hope. Hmm.
3: I guess I I think um that Grace is right. Grace, I'm coming back to you about uh, the students standing up. But you know what what is a little um troubling is that in Virginia at least we're talking about you know rules that have been put in place by by the governor. You know that um in Pennsylvania they don't really have, you know it was just it was it was their laying back so to speak. But in Virginia. You know, it's on the books. Um, And so you're really, it's concretized, I guess is what I'm saying. So there are students trying to protest rules that have been put in place, despite what EJ has said about um, what their classmates, what their classes look like, what their understanding is about who their classmates are, all of that in reality, you know, and still there are these rules that are um, troubling.
0: You know, I think what, what, uh, and this, might be a miscalculation on the right i mean there's many ways to to fight there's fighting in the courts there's fighting you know uh against policies there's um, uh fighting in the streets uh, and there's fighting at the ballot box and you know this coming tuesday and uh i think the miscalculation of the right is that the LGBT com- community, you know, we've we've come a long way and we're not going back. And and there are more allies than ever before. You know, to E.J.'s point, there are, there are more families that are supportive, more friends and just people in the community where they say this is a non-issue. And and they're seeing politicians making an issue. And, and the more they the the right pushes, the more they're going to find that the left is pushing back in, in all those fronts.
3: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Grace Sterling Stoll, Executive Director of Bagley, Jansen Wu, Executive Director of GLAD, and E.J. Graff, Managing Editor of The Monkey Cage at The Washington Post. We're discussing the latest LGBTQ plus news in this week's roundtable. So, to all of your points there is now a formal effort to create something called a rainbow wall, which is really interesting. So these are 20 states across the country that have pledged to offer a legal shield. Jansen, um, talk about uh, what this means and what it could mean uh, if it gets even more pickup. 20 states is quite a number.
2: Um, it is so important for you know states that you know are able to you know, protect LGBTQ communities, but also send a symbol of support, um, you know, in an age when we're so polarized, um, you know, this is, this is important um, for young people. Um, and I also want to just say that, I mean, we can't exist as a nation or, you know, and we can't leave behind folks in our community in other states if, you know, we got half the country that's going to allow LGBTQ youth to be who they are and receive an equal education without fear of violence or harassment in their schools. And then the other half that, you know, where, you know, elected officials all the way up to the governor are targeting um, their ability to even be out or, you know, to talk about their families that they have, you know, two gay dads or two lesbian moms, um, which is now the state um, case in in multiple states in this country. Um, we got five states in the country where know you there's required parental notification if the school is going to talk about anything lgbtq inclusive glad has a lawsuit right now even in new hampshire um that passed a school censorship ban uh that um prohibits um teachers from talking about specific banned concepts uh which include issues of sexual orientation gender identity but also race and disability and gender and the impact is that it's chilling teachers' ability to teach and also provide support for their students.
3: To be clear about what that blue wall looks like in in its uh, iterations, one is our our plans to offer refuge, uh, following up your point, Jansen, about um, how dangerous it is for a lot of these young people in certain states to transgender youth and their families, right, against this this wave of anti-LGBTQ legislation. Um, and then there are uh, folks are getting referrals, I guess folks like yourself, from other states about, you know, what ways that they can combat um, the legalities that have been put in place, the rules, as I was referring to earlier. E.J., why don't you weigh in on that, on this rainbow wall?
1: What Jansen said about we can't um, leave behind our our friends and um, fellow rainbow folks in the, all the other states it, it points to how important it is to have a Democrat in the White House, the Department of Education and the Justice Department Civil Rights Division are going into some of these school districts and fighting some of these policies, taking the school districts to task. It really matters to have the federal government on our side.
3: And that's just to underscore that uh, could be a partisan statement on your part. But the point is that a lot of this anti-LGBTQ legislation and rules are coming from Republicans. That's not a, you know, that's not a, a partisan statement. That is the fact. So we want to be clear that people understand that's where it's coming from. Now, speaking of Republicans who are running for office uh, and the culture war clashing, the, I have to say this story crossed my desk, my my computer screen, and I was— floored because this is the level of toxicity that I've not seen in a while. And this is the story about whether there are students and they really are referring to, you know, trans students who are pretending to be cats and peeing in the hallway in litter boxes. This is in case anybody's listening to this and thinking it's true. It is not, but it has gathered steam. Some somebody made up a hoax and so let's just take a. This is a clip from the Today Show. So you get a sense of what's going on. Um, the story has gathered national attention. Uh, the more people say this is not happening, it seems to get um, some energy. But here it is from the Today Show.
2: The first sign of the rumor up. in the U.S. appears to have been at this Michigan school board meeting last December.
4: I heard that at least one of our schools in our town has a, in one of the unisex bathrooms a litter box for the kids that identify as cats.
2: Where it was discussed um, by a parent without proof, then shared on Facebook by a chairwoman of the Michigan Republican Party, referring to furries, a small group of people who are interested in and may dress up as animals with human-like features. The false story snaking its way across the country.
0: They think they're a
3: cat. A cat. They put tails on and they demand that they have a litter box in the school. All right, EJ. Um, you too are rightly freaked out about this. What, what do you have to say about it?
1: What this this makes me think of two things. First, is um, during the marriage fight, almost every politician who was opposed to um, marriage equality said that the next thing that would happen would be men wanting to marry their German shepherds. 100% of them said German shepherds. I don't know what these guys had about German shepherds. And the idea is to take something that is human and real, um, the uh, gender identity and young people who are trying to relieve themselves in bathrooms without becoming federal cases, um, and... Say this is going to become something completely ridiculous. They, in this case, this is the second point. They've gone straight for the big lie, and said that um, there are children who are also identifying as animals. The the comparison to animals seems to be the way that um, our opponents like to say, uh, like to like to say that. Anything LGBTQ is going to lead to us being less than human.
3: Um, Grace, had you heard this? I, I literally I just heard this like this week or end of last week.
0: You know, I hadn't heard it, but it doesn't surprise me. You know, I think we should name it for what it is. It's propaganda. The right has been uh for years now and and it's escalating, uh, has been propagating propaganda outright lies, distortions to discredit not only LGBTQ folks, but all all folks who who they are threatened by or are, are attacking. And 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 unfortunately, in this kind of, you know, world of the social media, it gets traction.
3: Jansen.
2: I mean, the fact that it was on a Today Show shows that their campaign of distraction has already succeeded. And instead of talking about the issues that are really important to all of us, including the LGBTQ community, people are focusing on this instead. And it's not innocuous either. I mean, as E.J. pointed out, it's, you know, based upon, you know, deep-seated stereotypes, um, harmful stereotypes um, about the LGBTQ community. Um, There's other ones, but going back to the school context, you know, the um, revival of, you know, stereotypes of LGBTQ people as um, um, uh, sexual predators, um, which they now call grimmers, uh, is part of this campaign of distraction and fear. And I think it's really important to just note that this is all tied to efforts to weaken our democratic institutions. Um, You know, these are the campaigns of distraction that allows, um, you know, you know, those who would want to, you know, weaken our democracy to advance that cause without people noticing.
3: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Grace Sterling Stowell, Executive Director of Bagley, Jansen Wu, Executive Director of Glad; and E.J. Graff, Managing Editor of The Monkey Cage at The Washington Post. We're discussing the latest LGBTQ plus news in this week's roundtable. So so understanding that this, the, the culture wars, as you've described, are intense and deeply toxic in this moment, you know, we live in a global world. Um, there may be it may have been a time where folks thought that America could sort of be by itself and um, and go in one direction and not be impacted by the rest of the world, but but the rest of the world uh, that no longer is the case. So that's that's my that's the first thing. And the second part of it is that in Cuba and in Mexico, um, same sex marriage is approved. In Cuba, it was huge. Two thirds of the voters backed it. This is amazing. As uh, people may know, Cuba has a, as the article says here, the long tradition of machismo on the island. And then there were some states in Mexico and where a same-sex marriage was approved, but now all of the 32 states agree. So here you have, I know all of this is very fluid, um, Jansen, I'll just let you pick up from where you were, but it's, I don't even know how to describe it. So you have what's happening in the United States that's Pretty strongly uh, toxic, where there appears to be movement in a different direction in the rest of the world. So, what impact can that have on what's happening here? It's going to have to have some, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, what an amazing symbol of hope for, you know, people across the world, but particularly in Cuba and Mexico. But thanks for coming back to me because I realize everything I've been saying has been fairly dark, and and I and I think it's important for listeners to understand that. Um, but what I'm also trying to say here is that we have to focus on the long game. Um, and the fact that Cuba and Mexico just, you know, you know, ended their bans on same-sex couples, you know, loving and committed same-sex couples from marrying, that didn't happen overnight. That took decades and decades and decades of work of activists, just like it took us decades of work to get to where we are. Um, and so for me, we are in a dark place, but that is only the starting point for the work that we have ahead that I'm not going to see finished. And, you know, it's going to take decades and generations, but we have to understand where we are first in order to know how to get to where we want to be, um, which is a society that is inclusive and affirming and caring and compassionate, um, and that believes strongly in a pluralistic and multiracial democracy.
3: Would you like to weigh in, Grace?
0: I, you know, Jansen and I've had these conversations and, and and he's absolutely right. You know, the challenge for all of our communities is this balance between recognizing the the real threat and the real dangers that are facing us at the same time, uh, you know, being clear and having hope for the the work that as we move forward, uh, because it, it it's it's going to take all of us working together, uh, and 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 probably in different ways than in the past, where where some of the the movements were more siloed, but to to be working together in common cause. Uh, to to make sure that we we don't lose our democracy and we we retain protections or we create them where they didn't previously exist because it's it's the only way that all of our communities can move forward so uh, it's it's yeah it's the blueprint for the work that we have to be doing
3: EJ I think
0: um,
1: it's really important to notice that it's the authoritarian countries the um, Russia and um, Iran that crack down on anything that hints of deviation from rigid gender roles. Um, and it's vibrant democracies that allow people to be who they are. Uh, I'm not going to say Cuba is a vibrant democracy. Um, that was that seems to have been more um, hearing enough from friends and other parts, friends and family in other parts of the Americas. Uh, To allow to want to embrace one's cousins and friends and so on as who they are, but the DeSantis, the right wing in this country, just to emphasize what um, what Jansen was saying, the right wing in this country really is following the playbook of uh, the Hungarian government and Putin in cracking down on any gender variation, any. Um, intimacy that is not just man in charge, um, woman behind him, um, and and yes, these are all tied together. If we want a democracy, if we want freedom of our own bodies, then um, we have to be
3: involved. Hmm. We're all mourning Leslie Jordan. Um, I just was devastated to hear the actor. Um, had been killed um, in a car accident, and it appears to be he had some kind of medical accident and then ran into a wall and, and was killed. But let's first take a listen to him. This is Leslie Jordan on the Ellen DeGeneres show last year. I sort of fell out of the womb into my mother's high heels. There was like, people ask me, when did you come out? Well, you have to have been in, you know, to have come out. Now, in high school, I did, you know, you have to kind of play the game and And nobody bothered me. Nobody teased me because I was funny. Yeah. I learned to be funny to keep the bullies at bay. I was so uh, sorry to uh, hear of his death. You know, I kind of consider him a little bit like Snoop Dogg in terms of, you know, the way Snoop Dogg was originally viewed and now he's, you know, all over the place and universal. And I feel that way about uh, Leslie Jordan. I think he had... Achieved that, and if, if he hadn't quite, he certainly was getting there. Uh, so it's quite a loss uh, on a number of levels. Uh, just a quick response from all of you. I'll start with you, EJ.
1: Oh, um, I, I'm going to confess here, Callie, that I'm I'm such a bad queer that I actually hadn't heard of him until I. Learned about his death, so I'm going to pass along.
3: Oh my goodness! You've never seen any of his work; he's fabulous. Okay, it's time for you to catch up now. <laughs> <I know. laughs> All right, know I'm
1: always behind on culture.
2: <laughs>
3: okay,
0: Grace. <laughs> well, you know, I like you. I was very sad to hear of his passing. I loved him on Will and Grace. Loved him on everything. You know, everything that he did. I, he just brought such a, a joy. A, yes, funny, j- joyful presence of being who he was unapologetically in the world uh knowing that there's lots of folks who 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 would who would be threatened by that and uh but doing it so sweetly and good naturedly and and in a funny kind of way so yeah he was a special presence and 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 a true loss for our community
3: and Jansen, some people may know that he got a huge audience, bigger than his Will and Grace and other acting uh, fans uh, during the pandemic when he did these sort of live broadcasts um, every day that were really funny. Um, so he used all of his talent as a comedian and and his audience, of course, was universal, as I said.
2: <laughs> I am deeply saddened by Leslie Jordan's passing. And I actually um, was him not through his acting, not through his incredible comedy, um, but actually through his music. Um, Mm. In the latter half of his career, um, he really um, developed um, an incredible uh, musical presence, um, particularly in the Americana, bluegrass, country, and gospel world. And, you know, a few years ago, he put out a gospel album um, that's really incredible. And I'll just, you know, leave folks, invite folks to listen to his um, duet with Dolly Parton of uh, the gospel song where the soul never dies.
3: And he was uh, singing with um, with uh, Jennifer Hudson on her new show uh, not too long before he died. And that was quite a joy. They did a hymn together. So it was something to sing. All right. Well, that's going to be it for us. And I thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Grace Sterling Stoll is executive director of the Boston Alliance of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer Youth. Jansen Wu is executive director of the GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. And E.J. Graff is a journalist, author, and managing editor of The Monkey Cage at The Washington Post. Coming up, Boston was the backdrop for the machinations of Samuel Adams, who used his pen to help ignite what became the American Revolution— And yet his contribution, even his role as a founding father, has been pushed to the background in favor of flashier founders. In her new biography, The Revolutionary, author Stacy Schiff brings his story to the forefront with revealing, often poignant, details. The Revolutionary is our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, John Hancock, they are a few of the nation's founding fathers whose stories seem embedded in our collective memories. Founding father Samuel Adams, it's fair to say his story is not top of mind. And yet, as author Stacy Schiff's new biography makes clear, he was instrumental in stirring the revolution that led to independence. Schiff's new book, The Revolutionary, uncovers little-known facts about Adams, revealing a man whose contribution has not been fully embraced. The Revolutionary is the sixth biography by author Stacy Schiff. The former senior editor for Simon & Schuster won the 2000 Pulitzer Prize for Biography for her book about Vera Nabokov. Her essays and articles have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Washington Post, and Stacy Schiff joins me now in the studio. Welcome to Under the Radar, Thank Stacey. you so
4: much, Kelly. I'm thrilled to be here.
3: Well... I think it's clear that not many of us think about Samuel Adams in the way that you have extensively given us a peek into his life and to his importance in creating a young nation. So let me start at the beginning. Why did you decide to
4: write a book about Samuel Adams? Well, you pretty much um, just put your finger on it. I thought I was a little mystified by the disconnect between our ignorance of Adams and and the claims that the founders made for him. If you listen to um, the 18th century sources, if you to Thomas Jefferson's called him the earliest, the most active, the most persevering. He calls him the um, first among founders, essentially. Um, John Adams says, without the character of Samuel Adams, the true history of the American Revolution can't be written. So so I just kept wondering, what was it the founders knew that we don't? And when I went back to it, I um, began to find that Adams was re- pretty much ubiquitous in those years.
3: Well, it's interesting because I would think that the fact that there was so little to go on, because as you've explained in, in the book, that that would turn you off, really, because <laughs> you don't, you know, you
4: want to have more uh, you, to, you, to go you, through. You always want to have more. I mean, there are certain gold mines. There's always the sort of holy grail, the thing you don't, the thing you wish you had that you don't have. In this case, it was um, there was a beautiful, apparently, memoir of Samuel Adams written by his daughter, which has never turned up. Um, but there were also loads of descriptions of him in the British archives because, of course, he was the nemesis of all the crown officers in America who write back to London very colorfully about what a what a thorn in the side this pesky Adams fellow is. And, and that was just a great cache of documentation.
3: All right. Well, normally, this is the point where I would ask you to tell me who Samuel Adams is, but you've written it beautifully uh, right off the first page. So I'd love you to read that excerpt.
4: Samuel Adams delivered what may count as the most remarkable second act in American life. It was all the more confounding after the first. He was a perfect failure until middle age. He found his footing at 41, when over a dozen years, he proceeded to answer to Thomas Jefferson's description of him as truly the man of the revolution. With singular lucidity, Adams plucked ideas from the air and pinned them to the page, layering in the moral dimensions, whipping up emotions, seizing and shaping the popular imagination. On a wet 1774 night when a group of Massachusetts farmers settled in a tavern before the fire and pipes in hand discussed what had driven Bostonians mad, reasoning that Parliament might soon begin to tax houses, horses, cows, and sheep, wondering what additional affronts could come their way and concluding that it was better to rebel sooner rather than later, it was because the long arm of Samuel Adams had reached them. He muscled words into deeds, affecting with various partners a revolution that culminated in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence. It was a sideways, looping, secretive business. Adams steered New Englanders where he was certain they meant, or should mean, to head, occasionally even revealing the destination along the way. As a grandson acknowledged, shallow men called this cunning and wise men wisdom. The patron saint of late bloomers, Adams proved a political genius.
3: Wow. Um, So let's deconstruct some of that, because I just was enthralled um, with with that uh, opening. So I'm thinking, wow, look at this guy. I knew barely anything about him, and he's got all this going on. First of all, I have to point out that he was 41, as you point out, when he— First, got the stirrings, but I want to go back when he first did something about how he felt about it. But I want to go back um, to his entering into Harvard College and the question that is asked of, was asked at that time of all of the students, and the way that he answered it was totally different. And it seems to me, Stacy, that you were saying by revealing that bit of information that he was already focused, uh, even if he didn't know it yet, on on something bigger than than. What they would have expected him to be—that's
4: right. It's it's the question um, he poses in his master's thesis, where he answers the question, um, essentially, can opposition to to the throne be justified if the republic is at stake? And he probably answers that question, and and he and it comes down obviously on the side of yes. Um, and he probably answers the question as he does because an act of parliament um, had recently been issued, which had ruined his family. It was a bit of what was understood by the colonies to be. Parliamentary overreach, um, and it had bankrupted a group of men um, in and around Boston who, who were the directors of an adventure called the Land Bank. So um, it's hard to draw a parallel. It's hard to draw a line directly from that thesis, directly from the family's uh, ruin. Of course, to I, his, did. I do. T- I do too. I mean, <laughs> okay. you know, it's, it's hard to believe that he could that that could not have played an, played some kind of role. It's the first time in. In Massachusetts history, where a group of men consider defying the throne, mm-hmm. so I, I think it is meaningful, at least in that respect.
3: So a lot of stuff happens. I mean, he's a young man going to Harvard, and then he's sort of ambling around, really, in life and career at that point. And then it's he becomes forty-one, and all of a sudden, it feels like, but at the same time, it feels as though this was his moment, and he
4: recognized it and reacted. Uh, tell us about that. I think he really—we have—he had the the stamp and sugar axe, really, to, um, to thank for that. He sort of goes from black and white into, into blooming color at that moment between 1764 and 1765. He's, he's extremely he's kind of shambles his way around Boston. He's fairly aimless. He's written for papers. He's very briefly had a job in an accounting firm. Um, he's very much downwardly mobile and kind of down on his luck. But begins to, because of his sort of literary gift, help to write responses to parliamentary legislation for, for friends of his who are either in or around the Massachusetts House of Representatives. And that pretty much launches his political career. And he becomes soon a person
3: that, well, he's in the shadows deliberately. He's He becomes a little stealthy about writing these papers that are ginning up the rebellious spirit.
4: He's, it really is a life largely in the shadows, which is one of the reasons, why I think, why we've had trouble locating him. There's a lot of skullduggery. I mean, this is, these people are fomenting revolution or at least fomenting, you know, dissent and, and sedition at a, certain, at a certain point. It's at the no-fingerprint school of action, certainly. So, yes, he largely exists in the shadows. He very much writes pseudonymously. Much is done by committee and much is done just voice to voice without putting things on paper at that point
3: just let's give give a sense of how he was um thought of in that circle i mean he was if not revered he was very well respected in those days of those initial days of living in the shadows and 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 becoming a voice if one that was undercover
4: i think you get a sense of his import from from his cousin john whom he recruits mm-hmm. who basically says that um if for no other reason he should be on the map because of his recruiting efforts. Um, He brings John Hancock into the cause. He brings Josiah Quincy into the cause. Essentially, if you delivered a rousing speech to, you know, American liberty at your Harvard graduation, Samuel Adams was going to come and find you.
3: He was wealthy and then poor. And um, so first, give us a little uh, history about that. And then I wonder if you would be so bold as to think that this really shaped his outlook then from then on.
4: I think, it's, I think you put your finger on something. I think it's really interesting that the crown officers always write him off as someone who's disappointed in life, um, out of a job, um, indigent, and therefore discontent. And they forget that um, he's actually someone who had been born to an affluent family, who had chosen this path, this unmaterialistic path forward, where he's really just much more obsessed with politics and ideas than he is with material wealth. Um, and that he's acting out of principle. And that's a misunderstanding that will continue throughout the sort of 10 or 12 years leading up to the revolution, is that the Americans think they're acting out of principle, and the crown officers, and particularly the the royal governor or the lieutenant governor, will always assume that this is just a bunch of unhappy desperados who are just trying to upset the apple cart for their own sakes.
3: There's a couple things that you um, made clearer for me, and I I realized, again, my fuzziness about him. First of all, the Paul Revere ride, which you write about thrillingly, thrillingly. I mean, I know people are going to say, well, I know the poem and I know it's a thrilling story. I said, no, you've just you don't even get it until you read your book. Stacy Schiff, <laughs> author of The Revolutionary. I mean, I literally was on the edge of my seat like I didn't know what was going to happen. So <laughs> it's, it's that really thrilling. But what I really didn't know is that, well, uh, Paul was writing it to let everybody know the British are coming, but he really wanted to warn Samuel Adams. I mean, that was part of his goal. So talk about that and why that was important um, for Revere to do.
4: Bless you, because that's why the book opens as it does, because I realized one day, wait, we all know that Paul Revere got on his horse that April evening, on a horse that April evening, and rode as fast as he could west. But where was he going? And I realized none of us think about what the destination was. Um, and the answer to the question is that um, General Gage, then in Boston um, with several regiments, had received orders from London to arrest John Hancock and Samuel Adams. Interestingly, the only order that survives is an order of General Gage. To collect munitions that are in Concord, that are stored in Concord at that point. But the understanding among the Patriot network is that in fact he is about to dispatch a ride dispatch men to arrest or to assassinate John Hancock and Samuel Adams, the two proscribed traitors who were then in Lexington at the house of the of the Lexington minister. And that is the message that Paul Revere is given and with which he then rides off into the night.
3: Now, you brought me to just another revelation in your book, which is the relationship uh, between John Hancock and uh, Samuel Adams. You've already said he re- he was a great recruiter. He did recruit him. And your whole description of John—I don't know what I thought about John Hancock except for the signature, of course, but I never thought of him as sort of this— um, Overly dressed, foppish is the word that some used. Um, individual who didn't seem to be quite bright. <laughs> so it was, and here he is with Samuel Adams, who's very bright. And so talk about that relationship.
4: <laughs> it, it, it seems to be a question of, um, I mean, cynics, cynics phrased it this way, and I don't think it was necessarily wrong, that Hancock. That Adams calculated that Hancock would be thrilled with the attention he would receive if were he a political figure, and that the opposition party would be thrilled by the by the lucrative support that John Hancock could lend the cause. So it was an exchange that worked out well for everyone. Um, what Samuel Adams didn't necessarily bank on was that Hancock was a bit of a weather vane in his ideas, so he could occasionally be seduced away from the patriot cause, as indeed he was at several at several junctures, particularly after the Boston Massacre, when things go very quiet. And when the when Thomas Hutchinson then then the acting governor does his best to seduce people away from Adams's side, and John Hancock at that point basically swears he's never going to speak to Samuel Adams again and hopes never to see him in his life. Um, and friends will ultimately reconcile the two, and then they will get back together, and then they will fall out. It's a very it's a very thorny relationship because they are such different characters. Adams is all ideas and idealism, and John Hancock is all about applause and. Frivolity. He's written off by even his admirers as sort of a foppish pseudo-aristocrat at the time.
3: Shocking to me. I, I, I just thought of him as being more dignified
4: than that. And so I think he was a very dignified <laughs>
3: pseudo-aristocrat. <laughs> well, the weather vane, I thought you—that's kind. Uh, where I come from down south, we call that running hot and cold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought, boy, this guy—he is not a he friend. He does. He does.
4: I think he's actually one of the reasons we forgot we forget Adams as much as we do because after when they return from the Continental Congress, Hancock goes out of his way, essentially, to denigrate Samuel Adams. And Hancock's word in Boston is very strong at that point; it's golden. Mm. So mm. I think that he does him a great disservice at that point.
3: I'd love you to read an ex, uh, another excerpt from the book.
4: Nothing Adams included in his first public paper diverged from sentiments he'd long expressed and his opinions aligned with those of Otis, with whom he had clearly conferred. In a much-read 1764 pamphlet, Otis contended that anyone who took property without consent deprived a subject of his liberty. If a shilling in the pound may be taken from me against my will, why not twenty shillings? And if so, why not my liberty or my life? He threw in a reminder that the colonies had, until recently, been settled without the least expense to the mother country. They prodigiously enriched Great Britain. No manufacturers from a European power other than Great Britain could be introduced to the colonies, and no honest man desires they ever should. He affirmed the undoubted power and lawful authority of Parliament to legislate for America. As uneasiness mounted around the new legislation, Adams emerged from the shadows, seeming over the summer of 1764 to step out of some sort of comic book phone booth. Otis may have launched him. The two were in close contact. Adams evidently turned out additional unsigned pieces for the House. He may have been propelled by British overreach, to which he would owe his career. If you're just tuning
3: in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm speaking with Stacey Schiff, author of The Revolutionary. You just heard her reading from that. This is her latest biography about founding father Samuel Adams. It's our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. So now we have to, because uh, you do a great detailed telling of the Stamp Act, which laid the foundation for much of what came after. And, of course, um, as we've heard again, uh, set the stage for Adams' secret work and um, the re- the building up of the, uh, the rebellion. So you really have a good sense of what was happening with the colonists and how they were getting madder and madder and madder. But part of that equation was what was happening on the other side with the British. And I have to tell you, Thomas Gage, the British general in charge of all of North America, for 10 years— Two steps behind the rebels at all times. The guy is like almost a comic figure.
4: What the hey? Tell us about him. (laughs) You know, you can't can't overestimate um, the British missteps in this story. I mean, so much of this is a matter of just tone deafness on the mother country's part. And some of that is indeed Gage. Some of that is just the ministry in London, um, which hasn't really spent any time trying to figure out who exactly these, where these colonies are or who they are. There's great fogginess in London. Is Philadelphia in the East Indies or the West Indies? Nobody's quite certain. What color are these people? What language do they speak? And no one, you know, these early acts, the Sugar Act and the Stamp Act, are essentially just a means of raising revenue, but also of sort of recalibrating or delineating the colonial relationship no one in in london or very few people in london understand that 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 it's killing the golden goose that that is how that is going to be received in america and the same will be true all the way through 1773 with the tea act where no one in london is really aware of how closely the words tea and liberty are braided mm. together at that point
3: mm. um one of the things that i am taken with um because you Carefully portray uh, Samuel Adams as a, a guy of great integrity, and he—that was that was his foundation, and he he stood on that very strongly. And one of the things that was important to me, certainly as an African American, is that he was anti-slavery. Um, and as we know, if many people don't know, many of the other founders were not. Uh, so there was a situation in your book when he was put in a situation where. He could have embraced slavery just to get along, and he did not.
4: It's a very personal moment. The when on his second marriage, his former mother-in-law, meaning to be gracious, tries to bestow an enslaved person on the household, um, which was a not unusual wedding gift at the time. And Adams balks and says, "No, um, we'll be happy to have Surya. she was named, come and live with us, but she must come as a free as a free woman, not as a slave." Um, and he arranges for that, and she, in fact, lives with them for I think fifty years. Um, there's not a letter from the Continental Congress in which he fails to ask after her. It was clearly a red line for him. Um, so, yeah, we have that We have that very clear line in the sand. So moving
3: forward, they, if people don't know, surprise, became a young nation. <laughs> Independence was achieved. Um, there's a lot of the stuff that happened that a lot of people who uh, live in Boston would know about, including that tea, famous Tea Party. And now we're about the building of a young nation. Now we're about forming um, a country. And we have a Samuel Adams who was so great as a rebel, so great as stirring the independence, kind of not comfortable um, in the role on the other side, which— a little bit surprised me because he was very smart. He actually knew what he was driving toward when he was doing all the rebellion. So, Stacey, why didn't that work out that he seemed to be so uncomfortable?
4: It, it's almost as if his gifts desert him in the sort of third act of the life, post-revolution. Um, he 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 is a, an amazing idealist. That's absolutely true. He's not a man of institutions. And there are two things at work here. One is that he Needs to sort of be swept off the stage a little bit because he was a provocateur. He is a revolutionary. When you're building a new country, you don't really want the revolutionaries still to be hanging around. That's a dangerous state of affairs. But it's also—it doesn't play to his strengths. And he increasingly, over the years, it's really rather stunning, backs the wrong horse, gets involved with very shady characters, um, creates controversies, falls out with colleagues— um, it's just sort of one fumble after another. Um, but it really does see as if, seem as if those years in which he ab- is an absolute catalyst for ideas um, is his, is, are his glory years. And none of this kind of nation building—he's he's not a federalist. He's very still intent on being a Massachusetts man, um, hasn't really come around to this idea of America as a country. Um, those years are just not you know, not the shining years of the life. So a couple of things
3: just got to me. First of all, he was not very well liked. I mean, people were beginning to, well, express actual hatred of him. They really disliked him strongly um, because he seemed one that was going to stand on his principles no matter what, even if he clumsily couldn't sort of figure out how to how to express that and then be a part of something that was being built, um, something that he he made possible to be built, as a matter of fact. and then also that when he had the opportunities, we mentioned the anti-slavery, he also pushed for women's education while all of this was going on. And I thought, whoa, was he ahead of his time? What, what was that about? Where did
4: that come from? He's very—education, you know, and he, you know, it's basically a threefold program. It's piety, virtue, and education. And to those three ideas throughout his life, he is entirely wed. Um, remember, he's the man who— um, when Massachusetts goes to ratify the, the Constitution, feels there should be a Bill of Rights, which includes things like... Um Freedom of speech. I mean, he's very much ahead of his time in some ways, but, but at a point where compromise is necessary, not a good compromiser. And so he, in fact, abandons his stance on that one. But yes, those are dangerous years for him. There's one moment where he, uh, somebody throws a, a, a letter into his garden that warns him against potential assassination because he has made so many enemies.
3: Wow, I just, I actually felt a little pain to see how he was just, you know, slipping away um, at a time that ought should have been triumphant for him. So I guess that means that's why then he just sort of faded into a kind of obscurity?
4: I think he does himself no favors, first of all, in the sense that he is less popular at that in that third act of his life. John Adams will write to him and say, you know, the history of the revolution cannot be written without you. Um, he's essentially responsible for that entire revolution in thinking and in hearts and minds, as John Adams will put it, which precedes the, the fighting revolution, you should collect your letters, says John Adams to Samuel. And, you know, those whole countries will be interested in those decades of documents. And Samuel never does it. He leaves the history to others. And and for me, one of the most poignant moments in the book is when he's reading, he reads the first history of the American Revolution. And it's not at all the way he's experienced it. I mean, it's a terrible, very poignant thing to be reading about what what happened, but to see that the story is contorted.
3: Wow. So, if there's a spectrum of founding fathers and their contributions, where now, after having done this fantastic work on Samuel Adams, Stacy Schiff, where would you put him?
4: Well, I think what John Adams said is right. I think that, you know, the, the, the real revolution is the one in hearts and minds. That's the revolution that, that Samuel Adams really um, almost single-handedly masterminds. Um, so I'd put him on a pretty high pedestal this week. Maybe next week too.
3: <laughs> um, does his place in history deserve to be adapted, changed, highlighted,
4: whatever? I like to think he, we can we can sort of fit him back in the picture. I mean, it's so much the, it's so much the anarchic, um, rough and tumble, ragtag street theater of the revolution. I think we have a very you know we have a very sanitized, dainty version of this history, and it would be I think a a smart thing to realize that it also um, has these other aspects to it.
3: So I ask all my authors this, um, and there's so much in your book. I, I'll be interested to see how you answer. It. What What do you want um, readers to take away from the your story, the revolutionary about Samuel Adams?
4: Well, you know, I think one of the things I most admired about him was the ability to stand up to, to stand up to power, the the, the moral backbone. And I and I I suppose I'd love to think that that was that felt exemplary to other people as well. And then I suppose just this insistence on his part that ordinary citizens banding together can actually create change, and he certainly is the is the poster child for that.
3: Well, I wish he could read it because you wrote him back in the story beautifully. It's exciting, it's interesting, it's revelatory. Um, congratulations to you! What a what a wonderful biography. Thank you so much, Stacy Schiff, for joining me. Thanks so much, Kelly. Stacey Schiff is the author of six biographies, including her latest, The Revolutionary About Founding Father, Samuel Adams. It is our November selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. The Revolutionary is available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GVH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Kelly Wessinger and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Catherine Hurley. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.